Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. And so now, without further ado, we have A.G. Lombardo, um, who is a native Angelino who teaches at L.A., who used to teach at a Los Angeles public high school, um, now retired and, and, a, and a, just a writer now. Um, and Graffiti Palace is his debut novel. And joining him is David Eulin, um, who I should have this memorized by now, uh, is the author most recently of the novel Ear to the Ground, a 2015 Guggenheim Fellow. His other books include Sidewalking, Coming to Terms with Los Angeles, a finalist for the Penn Diamondstein Spiegel, Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay and the Library of America's Writing Los Angeles, a Literary Anthology, which won a California Book Award. And coming up in September is the second edition of uh, Lost Art of Reading, which is now focusing on the resistance. Um, and they're here to discuss uh, Graffiti Palace, which our dear Hector Tobar says, um, reading Graffiti Palace, I half wondered if the Watts riots had been staged all those years ago, just so A.G. Lombardo could write a novel about it. This is a book that's as crazy and unpredictable as an urban uprising. It's a phanto, wait, phantasmor, wait, phantasmo, magoric, thank you guys like I can't read, uh, journey written in precise and haunting prose through a wounded and defiant city called Los Angeles. And just as a special bonus, we're uh, recording this event, video recording this event for a school in France who is studying this book. Um, and so if you want to turn around and, and wave to the camera, otherwise if you don't, most of you aren't in it. <laughs> um, and so here they are. Here is uh, A.G. Lombardo to read. Thanks for coming, coming. Thanks for coming out, you guys. I'm going to. I'm going to read. Uh, I'm, I'm going to read uh, chapter two from my uh, from Graffiti Palace. Americo Monk stands on the corner and studies the traffic signal. Recessed in their steel scalloped sockets, the bulbs follow their programmed progression. Green, yellow, red. But something is wrong. The red light flickers with darkness. As if Edison, no longer able to regiment the ghetto's grids, has installed these sputtering forth signs through the city's hoods. The signal turns to green. Now Monk can see a blackbird fluttering inside its nest, webbed in the light's cowl. He crosses San Pedro Street, walking east down 112th Street. His worn red keds seem blood orange in the dying sunlight. Run down, run down salmon-painted apartments and power poles flank one side of the street. Every door and window is open, surrendered to the sultry, stagnant heat. He passes a liquor store and a barber shop. Three men hunch on the curb, drinking beers from brown paper sacks. A little girl with no shoes pedals a tricycle past Monk, her reflection passing through his dark sunglasses like a sprite. A languid, suspended summer. 
Mother's Day, the fifth of each month when welfare checks arrive, has come and gone, and now the money's drying up. Soon it'll be Father's Day. Parole days are on the first or last day of the month, and black men and long-gone fathers and husbands will return with empty pockets. He pauses looking up at a billboard that shimmers through the smog behind the liquor store. A student of semiotics, he remembers the sign. A black man posed with a beautiful black woman as they toast a 40 ounce bottle of beer. Old 88 malt liquor in giant letters under their beaming faces. It'll kick your ass sumptions. But some guerrilla urban artists attack the billboard, pasting two giant white triangles, masks with black eye holes, over the faces of the black models, transforming, transforming them into cartoonish Ku Klux Klan. Rampant vandalism. Monk shakes his head, grins. He stops before the graffiti sprayed in yellow on the brick facade of a padlock storefront. Three numbers hyphenated like a birth date inside the drippy double loops of a capital B. 62013. Monk opens his tattered blue notebook. A thick sheaf of papers, notes, diagrams, drawings of the city's graffiti and street art. Ink and pen pencil sketches of gang symbols, tagger signatures, homeboy art, margins filled with his crab neat printing about locations, explanations, questions, affiliations, styles, leap motifs, connections. He thumbs to an empty page and copies the graffito. Numbers equal letters placement in the alphabet. 6F20T13MFTM, fuck the man. B, for the businessman gang, Watts area. 13 also, marijuana, marking territory for drug selling. Monk's co Monk copies the tagger's autograph. A lowercase t with an arrow pointing up. Little t from uptown. Turning south, Monk walks on. Sun setting, he better catch another RTD freeway flyer bus back to the harbor. Carmen's gonna be pissed off. The big rent party. He smiles. She's a good woman. She'll wait for him. Like that Volkswagen convertible that shares her name, always free and open. Not just her legs, but her mind, heart, soul. Back home where the containers offer him some faint chance of containment. Warrens and levels of iron shields that might stop the inundation of signs and input that he suspects will one day drown his sanity in infinite white noise and static. But Carmen, with maddening practical female radar, always laughed at him and said no. It wasn't containment that he sought in the iron wrens of the harbor, but compartments. His life was an endless series of compartmentalizations, a vast accretion of disparate selves and moments, switching off with every closed iron hatchway and on again with every open bulkhead. And now the baby coming. Ready or not, boy, it's not going to wait for you to get your shit together. His t-shirt sticks to his sweaty copper skin. Summer in the city always seems endless, an unbroken chain of tinder 
dry days and humid airless nights. The seasons, nature herself suspended in urban purgatory. His friends had a term for it, ghetto time, when minutes, hours, days, and nights fracture and blur and compress into a searing now, as if the atmosphere itself teeters on the verge of sparking into flames. Everyone senses this, a jittery, heat-exhausted edge in dripping faces and dark, burning eyes, every soul waiting to be consumed. On the corner of 113th Street, he stares down at the sidewalk. Seven pennies in a row. Above the pennies, a tiny Dixie cup filled with water. Below the copper line of coins, a chicken wishbone, a greasy black thread tied taut between the prongs of the bone. Gris gris, a hoodoo sign pointing east. Watch yourself, monk. A car horn blares and he squints up through the dark filters of his glasses. A burgundy 63 Pontiac Bonneville rolls by slowly, windows down, four gangbangers in front and back seats. Two black men flanking passenger side windows press their fists to the outside door panels. Monk's thumb crooks inward toward his curved index finger as the Pontiac chugs along the curb. The fists pressed against the passing car doors curl, answering Monk's sign with identical salutes. Thumb and finger for G, the gladiators. All brothers here, cool. The Bonneville skulks behind a corner. He explores this no man's land with, if not immunity, then a kind of fragile grace. These tenement streets, abandoned alleys, shuttered brick fronts, desiccated apartments, frame houses bunkered with grates and iron bars in every window, the gangs, the Slossons, East Side local boys, Eight Tray and the rest suffer him free passage, a fleeting transit through their interstices. Battle lines and war zones, all but invisible except for the signposts sprayed on walls, which you ignore and fail to decipher at your own peril. A motorcycle cop sputters on his Harley Davidson, faceless behind reflecting eggshell helmet. Now the cop imperceptibly nods in Monk's direction as he grinds gears east down 113th Street. Officer Reynolds, he knows almost all the cops. They too have sanctioned him safe routes, another gossamer passport through the city's shadows. His clutched, bulging notebook is a badge, papers that usher him past subtle checkpoints and border crossings. The urban graphologist and graffiti semiotician has lately proven of interest to all the city's fractious councils. The gangs and the police need Monk's arcana to track enemies, gather intelligence about new gangs, outlaw splinters, incursions, ever-shifting balances and loyalties and territories. So he moves, a double agent, inviolate for now, through the city, recorder, codemaster, pawn, but who is using whom? At Avalon and 113th Street, two men argue in front of a pawn shop. Motherfucker! They walk down the sidewalk shouting, hands gesticulating in the air like dark birds. Children laugh and splash around a broken hydrant, water cascading in the gutters, iridescent curtains raining down on soaked cotton shirts and torn pants. Where the pavement meets a low crumbling wall skirting a weedy vacant lot, a graffito as if folded, half painted on the sidewalk, then extending up the wall. 
two black spray-painted hands, palms outstretched, thumbs joined in the center like some kind of craning head, splayed with a fringe of fingers like ragged wings, a night demon taking flight. Monk sketches the figure out in his notebooks, scribbling the location and the artist tag in the margins. S.M. Capital O. Capital G. Smog. Las Sombras, a legendary East LA gang from before the war, back in 41 or 42. Are they coming back? Hard to tell. The Mexican gangs have an added veil of secrecy. They're street Spanish. Monk's seen a pattern in his notebook. The black gangs seem to be creating their own Negro underground slang and symbols, learning from their Mexican rivals. He'd seen Smogs, OG for original gangster, work only once before. Maybe some kind of splinter group or homage here, tagged on the sidewalk. Pneumatic brakes hiss, Monk turns, a fire truck idles before the broken hydrant's sparkling geyser. Firemen in soaked yellow ponchos cap off the valve, shooing kids sloshing across the huge street puddle away from falling panes of water. An angry little boy skims a trash can lid across the puddle, bouncing it off a slick poncho. Sunset smog glowers over rows of bleached tenement apartments like the spine of some prehistoric behemoth. Avalon and Imperial now, cars and trucks shimmering in the heat. A car horn bleats across the street. Pinatas and purple candy skulls festoon a tiny grocery store. A beauty parlor, afros ensconced in hair dryers, undergo undergoing secret transmutations. Another liquor store, dingy Bell Bonds office. Monk passes a shattered telephone booth reeking of urine. Fuck bitches drips cursively on a plaster wall. Sometimes he wants to erase, blot out all these atavistic scrawls of division and hatred, but it's impossible. All he can do is catalog it, try to glimpse the glittering, infinite cosmos of these urban signposts, or be lost, swallowed into the blinding noise of unparsed glyphs. This city is always changing, shedding its skin of underground signs and languages in paroxysms of destruction and rebirth, seething in a secret war between the dispossessed who write its street histories and the cops and power structures who destroy unsanctioned communication through anti-graffiti paint crews and incarceration and intimidation. He will be their historian south toward 115th Street. In an alleyway behind a burned out car hulk, two winos sharing a 40 ounce bottle of that old 88. One bum leers at Monk. Brother, can you paradigm? What'd he say? Now the wino's in the middle of what looks like a world record swig when his companion yanks the bottle from his mouth, foaming beer down his greasy shirt. They tussle, the bottle smashes over someone's head, beer dripping down a chin as they fall backward into clattering trash cans. A black ghetto rat, big as a cat, skitters from the rolling trash cans. Glass eyes 
glittering at Monk as it wedges its rippling fat fur through a hole in the brick wall and disappears like some kind of plague knight's apparition. Jesus, is it his imagination or are those monsters getting bigger, gorging on who knows what kind of garbage here in Soul Town? Trash cans full of ribs, grits, fried chicken, old 88. Monk passes the alley knowing that the city's signs are sometimes more insubstantial than his spray-painted taxonomy. A fist blossoming into a probing gang sign, a stranger's threats, a child's angry missile, a car horn, a smashed bottle, the city's usual progression of violence as day flees from the sway of night's darker forces. Now in the final smoggy prisms of the sun, women return to these blanched apartments and besieged homes, retreating behind locked doors and barred windows and security gates. Thousands of the city's women returning from work, not men, the Negro men are gone, taken by the police, drugs, booze, the open road, games of chance, pimping, girlfriends, whores, pool halls, death. Women returning to their families, to children who no longer ask about daddy, to silences and empty spaces that deafen and blast their souls. White concrete traffic barricades have been erected on 115th Street, channeling traffic, a detour towards Central Avenue. Already a businessman tag spills across a barricade, no virgin canvas of white immune from the spray can and bandana-masked face. Even this graffiti has been answered, crossed out with a clashing rebel red swath of paint from the Slossons. Barriers, barriers the Department of Public Works carefully entrenches in key sectors and corridors of the city, coordinating with LAPD not to facilitate flows of traffic, but to siphon, control the grids of color. Blacks and browns must stay within their quadrants of containment. Not yellows, Asian gangs are underground. In secret command centers bunkered throughout the city, municipal controllers hunch over blinking traffic panels and monitors and cold foam cups of black coffee, watching for any breaches, any vehicles that may slip beyond their vectors. Monk makes his way toward the red line bus stop. Better get back home, Carmen's waiting. When it comes to women, there's always some man waiting to take your place. Better hold on to Carmen, his grounded, swollen-bellied goddess. Across the street, a derelict glances at him, silently rambling, lips sputtering, rants to himself. Or is he speaking in some noiseless tongue to monk? Candles in waxy glass jars encircle the sidewalk corner beyond the demolished stumps of the bus stop. Votives left for the dead. Virgin of Guadalupe candles, glass bowls of wax painted with the crucified Christ, dried flowers, faded cards, a popsicle stick crucifix. But here there are darker powers mixed with the signs of light and redemption. A dirty string with three knots, seven pennies piled on a stack, an arc of white brick dust gleaming into night's dusky shadows, portending a mixed warning to Monk, perhaps a path home more enigmatic and twofold than he'd like. Monk turns right, trudging down Stanford Avenue. A brother leaning against the sun-baked brick front of Ace Liquors nods as Monk passes. Across the street, sunset glows and engulfs jagged rooftops and crooked antennas and looping telephone lines. The parked cars flanking him still radiate today's pulsing heat. Will cops and gangs let him pass?
His notebook is a kind of spy's black book for them, an intelligence coup for cops tracking the gang's ever-shifting territories and feared alliances, and a grail to the gangs locked in constant war and turf incursions. So they wait, because the historian must write the history before it can be seized. He's always been able to pass, neither black nor white, through these battle-scarred streets. In certain lights and times of day and angles of refraction, he looks Caucasian, sometimes light Negro or copper. His hair is black, curled but not kinky, suspended in loops and ringlets. African or in other lights and to other people, disheveled and straightened. Others see Mediterranean, white, Arabian. A, a walking Rorschach mirror that perhaps reflects more of the beholder than the subject. And the eyes forever hidden under those ebony teardrop sunglasses. His grimy red keds step off the curb now toward 116th Street. Monk clutches his sky blue notebook to his sweaty chest like St. Paul with his Bible, his face like the saints, wavering, darkening as he trudges into the dusk, faintly smoldering with today's last fading light, deeper into profane pilgrimage. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, that was great. Um, I'm tired now. Yeah, <laughs> was, you know, now the fun starts. Yeah. So, um, right, so we're going to talk for a bit. Um, I'll just get my time set here. We'll talk for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes maybe, and then open it up to some questions from, um, from all of you. Um, so let's start with how did this project get, how did it first come to you? It's a great. It's one of these ideas where when you see it, you're like, "Oh, it's it's almost inevitable." I mean, it's you know, but it's also completely original. So, how did you begin to develop this idea? Uh, well, and do we uh, want to actually tell people what the general idea is? It's a sort of transposition of the Odyssey onto the landscape of um, of the Watts riots, right? Um, yeah. With that with that theme of returning home. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, like a lot of books, it's uh, rattling around in your. Uh, creative juices for, for quite some time. But um, there are basically three uh, main themes to my book, I would say, which is uh, graffiti, uh, the Watts riots, and um, uh, the Odyssey. So uh, I, uh, I was always fascinated with graffiti. And uh, being a high school teacher, uh, graffiti was always around the school. I was conscious of it, of course, in it being a, a native uh, Angelino driving around, walking around LA, there's graffiti everywhere. And uh, my kids, my kids, some of my kids in, in high school, they would have notebooks uh, filled with uh, graffiti uh, bombs, which are colorful sort of mural graffiti. And uh, all these drawings, they were fascinated with it. Is it their own drawings or drawings that they were copying they, off the walls or both? Or? It, it, both. And they would, they, would cop, they would take pictures and copy, mm -hmm. you know, all this, all this graffiti. And some of it's great, right? And it's artistic. So... Um, 
gradually I found some essays and I actually started teaching some graffiti essays uh, for, to my 11th and 12th graders. And then, you know, I would, I, 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 I just personally was fascinated with graffiti as an underground language. It's like uh, the voice of the dispossessed. And I would see it like, for instance, if I would see a billboard scrawled with graffiti and I'd think, well, that's great. They're, you know, they're jamming the, the official consumer message here. And then I would even see graffiti on the reverse of the billboards. Mm -hmm. And I would think, well, they're making their own free uh, billboard signs out of graffiti. So all this um, uh, graffiti was uh, uh, rumbling around my mind. And then, uh, you know, I had taught the Odyssey uh, quite a few times in to, in to my 12th graders because we did it as part of World Lit. So you know the Odyssey was all. Is, you know all writers are aware of the Odyssey. It's the first. It's the first great novel, right? Right. More or less. And um, it's a template for like every road novel ever written, right? Is, yeah. Grows out of the exactly. Odyssey. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's Jack Kerouac. <laughs> it's 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 the prototype. And um, so I was. You know. So I had. Uh, I had the Odyssey going for me. And of course, you know, we've all, all of us lit guys have read James Joyce's Ulysses and, you know, and, and to, to do an update of, um, of the Odyssey would be a, a great thing. So, so that was rattling around too. Um, and then, you know, maybe I even got subconsciously, I got the idea of the graffiti in the notebook for my students. I, I don't know, but mm -hmm. it's, you know, writers aren't 100% in control of what they do. So once I, I had the idea of graffiti and the notebook and this guy going through LA, and then I, I was kind of thinking about the Odyssey, and then I thought, but okay, I have LA, so what's, what's, what, what's going to happen in LA? And of course, that's, it's not a, a big stretch to think about the Watts riots, the Rodney King riots. I'm thinking, okay, I, I'm going to do the Watts riots. I, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't that, that cut and dry, but that's how it all sort of you know, came together, I think. And what kind of, I mean, so this is your first novel. It was, were you writing all along or was this something that you wanted to do when you were teaching literature? Obviously, deeply invested in, in writers and writing and, and books. Um, but what made, what was the thing that made the jump from sort of write, reading and teaching into the territory of, um, of writing for yourself? Uh, well, um, I've, I've always been a, a, a writer. Not always, but, you know, I, I wrote um, short stories when I was a kid. You know, when I was a teenager, like a lot of uh, adolescent boys, you know, I discovered um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Uh, Lovecraft, and I was heavily into horror films and fantasy and so forth. And uh, I was always writing. Um, and I have this uh, little story I want to tell. It's very funny. In fact, um, uh, I, I was buying uh, Poe and uh, Lovecraft's uh, books and fantasies and so forth and so I, I bought this uh, first edition of H.P. Lovecraft and it, uh, it finally came in this big box and it, it, it said Love, Lovecraft at last because it was like collected works <laughs> so my mom brought it in and she said I don't know why you have to order these kinds of books you know so but I was always I was always uh, uh, writing and um Graffiti Palace was not my first attempt at a novel. You know, I was, I was, I wrote a, a couple of novels, and f but, but I wasn't ready. They weren't, they weren't, right. they weren't good. Um, yeah. So, and then, uh, just, uh, and then, just teaching Graffiti Palace just sort of, it, it just sort of came to be. Um, you know, I started it. I started it. Um, I want to say like uh, ten, ten or twelve years ago. I started it and. Um, 
just I don't want to get too far off the mm -hmm. track, but um, uh, what happened? What happened was um, I wrote the book, and um, then um, I wrote a, a query letter, which is a one-page letter, you know, to interest uh, publishers. And then uh, brilliantly, I sent the letter directly to the New York publishing houses, right? Which is really brilliant. So of course I was, you know, completely ignored, uh, of course. So then I put the book back in the electronic drawer of my computer and I moved on to other projects or, you know, notes for projects. I'm, I was teaching, I was, you know, I had, I had a life. And then I thought, um, well, I'll try to get an agent. And then I thought, well, you know, an agent is like a catch-22 thing where, you know, an agent's not interested unless you're published, but you know you can't get published unless you have an agent. So um, I took the letter out again and I sent it to a few agents. And um, uh, uh, a few months later, I got an I got an email from um, from Bonnie Nadell, my agent, and uh, she said that um, she liked the first chapter. So I sent her the first chapter, and then a, a few weeks later, uh, Bonnie called me and said, you know, send in the whole book. And so that was a, you know, a great moment for me. And then um, it's also kind of funny how um, uh, I worked on the ending of the book uh, five times. I don't know if you remember this, Bonnie. I'm sure you do. I worked on the ending of the book five times. I, c I couldn't write the ending. Every time I, I sent her an ending, she said, this is horrible. <laughs> you know, do, do, do it again. You know, <clears throat> I've had that go experience. Back. Yeah. So... Like, like, so number five, you know, I, I was, I was like, I didn't know what to do. So number five, I just sent it in, and finally, I got an email from her. I don't know, like a week later or whatever, and she said, uh, she said, your ending is beautiful, and, and that was that. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because one of the challenges of writing a book like this, I would imagine, is that because you are kind of using a template that re that we know. I mean, for me, one of the most sort of interesting things about the book is that I, you know, I have the sense of what's going to happen. I'm not going to say what happened because I don't, uh, don't, I don't want to spoil it for anybody. Uh, but I'm really curious about how it happens, right? Like, I know that it's going to be a, a battle for Monk to get from where he is back home. Um, so I'm, in terms of that ending, or in terms of those challenges of creating, um, of creating scenes, it's not a direct one-to-one -one correlation, although it, you know, it, it, he does move through, he, he has his odyssey. What were the challenges for you in terms of writing a book that was both original, you're creating these characters, you're recreating this landscape, um, but is also kind of pulling on the movement of a, of a well-known um, work? Um, yeah, yeah, it's challenging. You know, I, I, I wasn't really um, in full control of, the, of what I was doing. Um, you know, the, the book is uh, 320 pages. When I, when I sent it to Bonnie, it was uh, 460 pages. So what, what I was doing is I had a, I had a lot of notes, and um, I'm, not, um, I'm not a stickler for, for plot. And remember, I'm just a guy writing by myself in my room. I had no expectations of, of it being published. Mm -hmm. You know, my track record, I had no track record. But, but you that's know, liberating in a way, right? That's because liberating. You can, you can do what you want to do. I, can you write without a net? Because yeah. I'm just writing for myself, you know. I'm, I'm, you got to write the kind of books that you wish you could read. Exactly. You know, and I'm thinking, if I don't write this, who, who the hell is going to write this crazy book? No, nobody. Right. Um, but to answer your question, David, so what happened was, I had some. I had some really key ideas of, of plotting it along with the Odyssey, mm -hmm. right? You know, I had those iconic uh, uh, riffs I wanted to do, like the Cyclops. You know, you got to have the Cyclops and uh, uh, Odysseus tied to the mast. You know, and you have to hit those high points. And in between, though, 
I was just having fun having Monk uh, going through L.A., going through the riots. Uh, he was encountering, uh, you know, scary things, but he was also encountering encountering uh, uh, paranormal uh, things. Uh, I guess the, the spirit of the Odyssey sort of took over, and, uh, you know, Monk encounters um, uh, prophets and uh, witches, uh, 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 voodoo practitioners, and you know a lot of even even crazier things. Um, but um, uh, following the Odyssey, uh, you know, you know, I wanted to hit those high points. Like uh, also, the Odyssey has um, uh, uh, Tiresias. Mm -hmm. This is this goes to your question. You know, Tiresias in the Odyssey was the blind uh, prophet, and he uh, he gives monk he gives um, uh, uh, Odysseus clues uh, about how to continue with his uh, his quest. So I had this idea, you know, this is 1965, the Watts riots. There were everyone had just uh, f there were just phone booths. So I wanted I wanted Monk to have to go to these phone booths mm -hmm. where he would get uh, clues from a mysterious stranger named you know named Tyre or short for Tiresias. And in the book, um, Tiresias takes on different shapes because um, in the Odyssey, Tiresias is a, is a shapeshifter. So Monk sees him at, at, in a shoe sh a shoeshine stand as sort of a just a, a, a shoeshine guy. And then later in the book, he sees him as a uh, sort of a mumbling, blind, crazy street preacher, and then as a disembodied voice. So I would so. I found I found it's a lot of things worked with the Odyssey, and when it didn't, I was just um, just you know having fun trying just writing the story. I didn't I wasn't chained to a to a plot. Right, and yeah. you're also creating that the kind of crazy. I mean, Hector's words exactly right. Phantasmagoric kind of landscape of Los Angeles in general, and particularly of Los Angeles in that moment where you know the lid has just been blown off and everything is. Um, is up in the air, which I imagine, from a writing point of view, gives you all kinds of freedom to sort of, you know, you can go, you can go as weird as you want to go because the situation you're writing out of is so out of control to begin with. So that that also must be a kind of a liberating factor in terms of, of how you can bring all of these things these elements in. Yeah, yeah, because you know the you know the book uh, you know I consider uh, uh, graffiti palace um, uh, urban fantasy, mm -hmm. uh, you know. Um, it's uh, it's a bit of um, uh, magical realism, uh, a little bit of uh, science fiction, and a lot you know, and a lot of mainstream fiction too. But uh, once I once I was sort of going down the road of the Odyssey, I realized that you know it was a fantasy, and I it, it, I there were no limits, mm -hmm. and yeah, but and but this. But the saving grace too was that it was firmly anchored in reality, which was the the Watts riots, right. and so it was a. As I look as I look at the book now, it was kind of a balancing act because, you know, the the, the uh, like the book is very wild, but it 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 never gets away. It never it never goes off into a dreamland or into something um, that's not believable. It's you know it's. Paranormal at times. It's it's fantastic at times, but it's but it's uh, it, as much as I could. I, I wanted to um, ground it uh, in in reality. 
And I mean, that's why you, there's, I mean, there, you use historical figures, right? The, 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 the traffic stop that triggers the riots is actually presented as, as I mean, in, you know, as a fictional scene, but as it happened with the, the real people and their real names, there are real historical figures who show up in the book, um, Elijah Muhammad, yes. as an example. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm curious about, too, about that, Not, I mean, maybe more in terms of Elijah Muhammad, but that decision to sort of interpose those kind of historical figures in the, um, in the fictionalized landscape of the novel. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Graffiti Palace was written over a period of many years, and as I, as I researched the book, uh, I realized that there were all these wonderful uh, real-life people and events, and, and, and in many cases, they were, it was crazier than the stuff I was trying to write, so I had to incorporate it. Uh, for example, um, Tiresias uh, in Graffiti Palace communicates with Monk uh, via the telephone booths. Well, um, in my in my research, uh, I found uh, something uh, called the uh, the Last American Telephone Booth, which is a big thing on the internet. You can Google it, and you know, allegedly the most remote telephone booth in America, uh, there really was one. It was out in Mojave. And it was out in the middle of nowhere. And just imagine a dirt road going in, out into the wasteland and only a, a line of telephone poles connecting it. And yet, and in this real-life telephone uh, booth, uh, all, the, uh, all the outsiders of the world would congregate. It was a mecca for... Uh, for um, uh, outcasts and for uh, you know for for tramps and travelers and and you know the, and prophets so and, and people would go there and they would make phone calls to strangers and have these you know bizarre conversations and then or they would just wait there and and the phone would ring because the the phone booth and, and, its, and its telephone line became famous. Mm -hmm. And they would wait for the phone to ring and just pick it up and have some bizarre conversation with a stranger. And of course, the booth was completely covered in graffiti. So, you know, I, I had to work that into my book. And it, was, it wasn't difficult because I've got Tiresias on the phone helping Monk right. uh, in a few scenes. Uh, you know, another great example is... Um, uh, is this really is blew my mind? Is Gene Roddenberry? Uh, you know, you guys know that Gene Roddenberry is the inventor of Star Trek, right? Captain Kirk, the Enterprise, all that, all that great franchise stuff. Well, um, actually, during the Watts riots, um, Gene Roddenberry was actually a cop. He was a sergeant. And he was uh, Chief Parker's right-hand man. Chief Parker was the police chief during the uh, LA, the uh, Watts riots. And uh, it's very funny because, you know, the cops and Parker back then, there was no idea of community policing. It didn't exist. The cops were, like, were more like just enforcers. They just swarmed and they just knocked the hell out of you and put you in jail. I mean, that was the end of the story. Um, and Roddenberry was... Uh, um, Parker's um, sergeant and Roddenberry actually um, uh, wrote the speeches for Parker and he actually uh, helped develop the uh, the uh, sort of the um, containment policy to quell the Watts riots and you know I so I riff on that it's to me it's very funny because Roddenberry is like space patrol he's the master of outer space but in my book he, the space he's controlling is the actual grids of the of LA the city to contain the you know yeah. the rebellion right? right so uh you know and and there's a lot more there and you know and there's uh, Tokyo Rose so you know so Tokyo Rose 
just very quickly, you know, Tokyo Rose was the famous uh, propagandist in World War II. She was born in L.A., and she had the misfortune of going back to Japan during, uh, right after Pearl Harbor, and she was uh, stuck there, and they wouldn't let her come back, and, you know, she was half American, uh, half Japanese, so the, uh, the Japanese government forced her to uh, do propaganda uh, against uh, the U.S. troops, right? So... Um, uh, she actually went to school in Compton, and you know, once I found that out, I said, "Well, she's going in my book. Right. I don't, I don't care. I don't care how how fucking weird it is. No, she's but going that's, in my book. That, that's the great part of it, right? Is that you can put all of those <clears throat> all those figures can show up in the book, and because of the landscape you've set up, it makes complete sense. Like, of course, he's going to run into Tokyo Rose yeah, or right. or Elijah Muhammad or or you know, or cross paths with Roddenberry. I mean, it you know, it it it's almost like I don't know. The whole situation is so weird that all of those elements fit perfectly, and then they have direct roots to the, com to the community also, which is even better. I want to ask you about the research. Um, it's always a tricky question to ask in terms of a novel, because you don't want to have too much research. You don't want the research to kind of take over, uh, get in the way of the creativity, but how much research, you are a native Angelino, so that story is part of your cultural DNA, but how much research did you, did you do, and how did you do it? Did you do it sort of beforehand, or did you do it to kind of fill in gaps as you were moving through the book? Um. I did. A, I did. A, um, uh, I did some research before I started the book. Uh, most of it was um, just a lot of miscellaneous notes that I had to uh, sort of uh, whip, whip into shape. Um, I read. A, I read um, a lot of books on uh, the Watts riots. Um, there, you know, there's a there's a couple of um, uh, uh, really important. Um, uh, uh, reportage uh, uh, books of, about the Watts riots. Um, one one is by um, uh, Gerald uh, Horn, who's a um, an eminent um, African American uh, reporter. He wrote a book called um, Fire This Time, mm -hmm. and it's a it's a a masterful. Uh, history of the Watts riots. Uh, another book uh, that I turned to, there was a, um, uh, he's, he's, uh, he's dead now, but there was a, uh, a, a really um, a great journalist, Amer American journalist, his name was Robert, uh, Robert Connaught, and he wrote um, uh, a, a seminal, uh, uh, the first history of the, of the riots, came out in 67, I think, and it was called uh, uh, Rivers of Blood, Years of Darkness. Oh, yeah. It was a great book. You know that yeah. one. So, uh, you know, I, 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 of course I read those. I read everything I could. So I did a lot of research and, uh, on, the, on the background of the riots. Uh, the Odyssey, you know, I, 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 I read the Odyssey again, and I, I, I looked at it as, as how can I, what can I use this time, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. uh, as, uh, as a novel. And I looked into a little bit of uh, LA history, um, and then a lot of it though was researching as I went too. You know, uh, you know, like I said before, I, I'm not a I'm not a writer that's driven by plot. You know, luckily, uh, luckily I have uh, uh, Bonnie and I have uh, Sean McDonald, my New York uh, ed uh, publisher and editor, to uh, to uh, reel me in. You know. Because otherwise, like I said, it was almost a 500-page book. But uh, you know, I would—I'm the kind of writer that just writes things, and, it, and if it's funny or if it's weird or new, then then it's it, that's where it, where it is. Mm -hmm. You know. But uh, Bonnie and Sean and others more uh, more. Um, 
uh, with more uh, reasoning, deliberate minds than my own, would say, well, you no, know, that's fine, but it, you can't just make up stuff. You know, like I thought, well, it didn't matter what street that this action takes place. This street goes to there. And they, and they would say, no, this street, it runs north. You have to, right. you know, so they were always grounding me in reality, which is good because uh, it, it, if you have a detail that doesn't belong, it, it, it you need a, a suspension of disbelief. It takes you out of the it story. It breaks the fictional dream, yeah. right? It's one of the reasons, you know, yeah. we, I was talking to someone, um, to Andrew about this before, right? It's one of the reasons I love the film Falling Down because the geography works, right? As he moves his way across Los Angeles, you know, he gets to, you know, he gets from, you know, you know the neighborhoods work. It, it, you know, you, you, they're not dropping it in. And I, that was something I really, really admired about the book that I felt the geography was so kind of clearly delineated, I could I could kind of almost map him in my head as he was moving through the uh, landscape. I, I had a, a lot of help w with that too in the editing process, but um, yeah, you know, w w when you write a book, it sounds e egotistical, but you really have to go for it, and you really have to think that you're going to try to write something that's really good. You know, like, um, you know, I, I actually said to myself, I'm going to write the best book ever written about L.A., you know, that's, I'm not saying it is, that's what I tried to do. And I said, I'm going to write the best book ever written about uh, American riot, the riots and, 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 the, and the, the racial themes and, uh, that underlie, you know, those, uh, those, those things. And you, you have to, you just, you, you have to set yourself that bar because you, you, you'll fail, but at least fail mightily. Yeah, you know? exactly. If you don't yeah. go for it, then what's the point? Yeah. So I have one more question before I turn it over, which I think has to do with that in some way. One of the, the thing that struck me first as I was reading the first pages of the novel before I got into the story was the language, right? The language is electric and um, and really exciting in the sense that it, it's 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 idiosyncratic and it's individual and it, it feels like all those sentences, each sentence feels like it's it's going for it. And I hate or hesitate to ask a writer about language because I feel like it's a fingerprint in some way. It's sort of how we use it. But I did want to get a sense of your sense of kind of the linguistic landscape of the, of the novel because it is so distinctive and it draws us into that kind of heightened reality, right? The heightened reality of the language and the heightened reality of Monk's observations match the heightened reality of the situation he finds himself in so that the book is kind of pitched at all these levels. So I wanted to just sort of get your sense of how that developed because I think it's just, it's one of the most remarkable parts oh, well, of the book. Oh, well, well uh, 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 thank you, David. Um, well, um, uh, when I when I write, I, I like to write in the in the uh, w when I can in in the uh, in the present tense, because it, it's it's visceral, it's uh, immediate, it's happening now. I'm try to put the reader right in the in the middle of the action, not uh, past tense. Mm -hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with past tense, but it's just it's just uh, not something I'm not very attracted to all the time. Um, also. Again, because I'm not a strong writer of plots, uh, I think you know every paragraph has to be like a poem. You know, every paragraph, uh, uh, a reader has to read a paragraph and say, "Wow, that's that's beautiful," or "That's, you know, that's really that that sounds like music." Uh, you know, I had um, uh, one of one of the reviewers. Uh, I don't know if it was um, uh, uh, John York from. Um, Los Angeles Review of Books or whatever, but he was saying that well, well other other people too have said that the music is like jazz, mm -hmm. you know, and so I, and and music and um, I'm saying I'm sorry the um, the uh, the uh, language is like jazz, 
And so that's true. In other words, the language to me is, is something that you hear. And so a paragraph should be like a prose poem. And to me, if it doesn't advance the plot, that's okay. It, 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 you'll get there. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I like to write in the, in the present tense. And uh, one thing that everyone's told me about this book is they, they always say, wow, you, you, the way you describe things, it's so vivid. It just jumps in my mind. It's, and so I, I think I'm very influenced by, by film, by mm -hmm. cinema. Um, I try to, uh, every scene I try to paint the picture, you know, you got to feel it and see it. And I'm not so much worried about the meaning. I know I, 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 that's in there too. But you have to trust your readers. You know, readers are intelligent. They, they'll, figure it, they'll figure it out, you know. But you have to, you have to paint a beautiful uh, picture. And uh, one other thing that sort of goes along with the language is, um, uh, is the setting. Uh, you know, I, I, my, I'm attracted to uh, extreme settings like uh, wars, riots, uh, upheavals, revolutions. Not that I'm, you know, like, you know, the book I'm working on next involves the military. What I like about that is extreme situations bring out the best and worst in people. And if you're, for me, if you want to write about a, a love affair or a divorce, set, set it in an interesting background. You can still do what you want to do, but make the background interesting. And the other uh, corollary of that, of that uh, thing for me is I like, is, um, you know, uh, this, my, my book is classified, you know, on the copyright page, it says uh, 20th, 20th century fiction. It says uh, historical fiction. Uh, I'm attracted to historical fiction. I like setting, uh, I like setting stories in the past. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be the deep past, but I like setting things in the past. And without, without getting uh, belaboring this point, what I like about setting things in the past is, you know, in, unless you're incredibly skillful, if you, if you write about the present moment, it's hard, to, it's, it's hard to separate the junk culture from the profound stuff. And you're in danger of your book being, you know, um, uh, just uh, out of date, Immediately, you know, you know, like 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 19, 1996. I mean, what's so great about ninety six? You know, probably nothing. But it, but if you set your book in a back a little bit, you from from hindsight, you can really you can really um, use the um, the landmarks and the culture of that time, and and. Uh, uh, for me, it's a you know, it's a just a, a fascinating process. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you very much. So it's been great. Let's open it up to some questions. Thanks, well, David. Let's applaud first. <clears throat> oh, thank, 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 thank you guys for coming out. And then um, let's open it up to some questions from from the assembled. Don't be shy. Yeah. Yes. I was just curious uh, where you got and also where you grew up in LA. Okay. Um, I, I taught at uh, San Fernando High School, uh, which is, uh, you know, kind of near Van Nuys and Pacoima and, and uh, East Valley. And uh, in fact, I have a fellow, one of my fellow teachers, Lori, is here. Um, as far as, uh, I, w I wouldn't say it influenced me too much. You know, the, the, uh, it, aside from the graffiti I talked about, you know, having the kid, becoming cognizant of uh, graffiti around the school and around, around the neighborhood. I don't think, um, 
teaching influenced me too much. Uh, aside from that, and in, in, I mean, teaching the Odyssey um, also. Um, uh, I, I was born in um, in Alhambra, and uh, uh, my uh, my f my father. Uh, my father was from uh, New York originally, and then he moved to L.A. And uh, my mom was born um, uh, in Boyle Heights, and she had uh, her mother had a boarding house, and uh, my f my father had uh, had a TB, and uh, they thought he was only going to live for a couple of years. He was in New York, so they shipped him out to um, L.A., where he met my mother, and uh, and it, it turns out that. Uh, that the TV didn't kill him, and he lived to a, a, a ripe age. But I, um, but I was born in Alhambra, and we lived there for a while, and then we uh, we moved out to uh, my folks moved to Van Nuys after that. Yeah. I'm curious about uh, the graffiti that influenced the book. You said you talked, uh, you taught some graffiti essays. Yeah. What did those involve, and has that opened you up more to? You said you notice it more, but how much you notice it here? Because uh, as as a former uh, vandal, I guess once you, once you start doing it and seeing it, you don't stop seeing it. It becomes a repetitive motive in every like neighborhood. Mm -hmm. I was curious if you talk a little bit more about. It. Well, yeah. So, so, so uh, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with controversy, and graffiti is very controversial. It's you know one man's art, and it's another man's uh, uh, vandalism. Uh, I found some essays um, to teach uh, in the twelfth grade, and um, there were uh, there were essays uh, that um, about. Um, uh, taggers and um, about um, uh, graffiti uh, art shops. You know, they had some like in LA, downtown LA, where where uh, the uh, uh, graffiti per, sort of quasi uh, professional graffiti artists would would uh, would practice in a, in a safe environment where they wouldn't get busted by the cops. But um, you know, for me, for me, graffiti. I real I didn't realize this when I was writing the book, but uh, uh, graffiti palace is all about communication and the limits of communication and the breakdown of communication and the success of communication. And graffiti is so fascinating as a form of communication because it's underground. It, it it's uh it's out it's an outlaw, uh, but also it's um. It has its um, artistic um, uh, acceptance now in some quarters. It, it, for me, it represented the voice of the dispossessed, uh, the, the voice of, uh, of anger, of people being disenfranchised. Uh, so it, it, it was as a subculture, as an underground thing, it was, it, to me, it was very interesting. And my students, uh, as uh, as Lori knows, my my uh, fellow teacher, our, a lot of our students were just obsessed with graffiti. They would, in fact, you know, there was there was there were such there were such pros. They would they would uh, do the graffiti first on stickers on decals, so they could I guess they're called slap-ons, and they'd slap them on so they wouldn't get caught because you could do that in a second. You know, like I said, they they had notebooks full of them, and after a while, after a while, I thought, and I didn't I didn't make this up because well, I thought, well, you know, let's do high interest reading material. Let's let's get essays about uh, graffiti, and and we had a twelfth grade. Uh, 
uh, consumable textbook, and there were a couple of essays in there about uh, graffiti. You know, and one kid was doing graffiti and got, this is in the essay, and got shot and killed. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, it's a very teachable, it's a very teachable subject, you know. Did you try, did you try writing down anything? <laughs> no, no, the, I, just, uh, just my, just my computer, no, I, yeah. I, I, I never, I never did. I, I, I bet it would be. A, uh, I can see, I can see the appeal. I can see the adrenaline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lori. Here you were toiling at San Fernando High School, and you, and you, and we didn't really know. Most of us didn't know that you were a writer until sort of toward the end. And you, you sound kind of cavalier, like I was just writing the book that I wanted to read. <laughs> but you were also sending it out to agents and hoping the world would see it. So can you talk just a little bit about that tension and or long suffering, uh, you know, doing the craft where you're, you're, you're doing it for yourself, but you really are hoping someone out there is going to care. I mean, what was that like? And you know, just anything about that process of keeping it going. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, in my opinion, uh, you know, people's, you know, people that want to write, sometimes they'll ask writers, they'll say, well, you know, where do you get your ideas? You know, how, how do you write? How do you do it? And the truth is, if, if, you're, if you're going to be a writer, you'll be a writer. It's 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 something that cannot be taught. I, I no disrespect to MFA programs. You can learn a, you can learn a lot about style and, and you know and stuff like that. But to to be a writer, you have to do a lot of reading, and you have to you have you have to be hungry for it. It has to be it has to be something inside of you. Um, in other words, for many many years, I just thought of myself as an unpublished writer. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I would go to bed and I would I would I would be okay with it. I'd say I'd say look. Look, guy, you're a writer. You you wrote fi you wrote five pages. You you did a that story was great. That book you're working on is is great. I got to remember not to say not to say any f words because we're being videotaped. Um, I slipped. I already slipped once, and I apologize, uh, France. Um, but uh, you know, for a long time, I, w I was I was saying to myself, you're an, you're gonna be an unpublished writer. That's you know that. And the time I spent trying to send stuff out to get published is like you know less than one percent. I mean, you 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 make you 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 do a a, a a chain letter. You know, you do a one page query letter. Take you once you spend a week writing the perfect letter. But once you do that, there's nothing else to do. You send it out and you get rejected. I I had. I had two short stories published in in ninety one and ninety two I think around there. One was in Ziziva, which is a, a famous West Coast literary magazine and writing those having those stories published was extremely gratifying but you know I, 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 I had to keep working on my books because because I, I, I was I just that, that's the only thing I thought I was good at yeah I always think of it as if if you if you can be dissuaded, then be dissuaded, right? If you know, if, if you can be talked out of it, then you're not a writer. And it, the writers are the ones yes. who are either, you know, too stubborn or can't do anything else, or just too monomaniacal. And you know, it's just you can tell me a hundred thousand times that I can't do it, and I'm going to get up and keep doing it. <laughs>
You yeah, know? and I think that's what has to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, in many ways, my, my story is kind of a Cinderella story. You know, just uh, just plugging away for many, many years and and sometimes having expectations, but more often uh, not. And just writing as much as I could, but not I couldn't write full-time until just a, a few months ago because you know, I had a family. I had I had to put, you know I had to earn money. I uh, was teaching full time. Uh, believe me, teaching high school is very stressful. It's a it's a full time job. How the hell can you teach high school and, and write a novel? It's it's enough to make you blow your brains out. But but I but I did because I I could not stop because uh, it's. It's the only thing that I that I'm good at, and you know, Graffiti Palace is a good book. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I've had uh, I've been very fortunate with the reviews. The reviews have been um, really lovely, and I'm 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 grateful. One more, you have time. We have uh, yeah. Um, I just barely started it, but I I love the language and the jazzy musicality of it. I also am noticing use of the N-word and wondering if you thought about that at all or if you feel that that was um, just relevant language historically and if you use it throughout the um, the, the, uh, of course, the, you know, the N-word is a very hot topic, and um, I, you know, I had to use it when it was historically uh, inevitable. Uh, you know, when I have scenes with, uh, you know, cops uh, uh, arresting uh, African Americans, beating them, beating them with clubs, they're not going to say, get, get, in the, get into the patrol car, Negro. They're going to use the N word. That's and it's 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 in the it's in the historical record. So, with all with all sensitivity to the freight and the uh, the hurtfulness of that word, uh, it, you have to use it in its historical context. Otherwise, your dialogue would just sound phony. You know. Any response from the African American community, like in SO1 bookstore? This is my first question. And my second question is Do you plan to uh, uh, translate in French? And, uh, okay. Yes. Um, uh, I, I'm not aware of any specific. Um, Excuse me, um, African American uh, response to my book yet. Uh, the only the only thing I know so far about that that topic is um, uh, you know the uh, appropriation of black culture is a very controversial thing today. Uh, you've read about. Um, you know the uh, the singer that was accused of um, of stealing black music uh, in in movies and also sometimes in books. Uh, uh, African Americans feel that they're being exploited and that and that they're being uh, co-opted by white writers, white filmmakers, uh, white uh, uh, musicians. So it's a very it's a very uh, it's a complicated problem and it's a very serious issue, but you have, you have to look at each individual uh, work individually because in, in, to me, this is just my prejudice, the, the novel is the highest form of art. And novelists such as myself, we're not writing this book to make a buck. You know, I, the book was written 
Anyway, nothing would have stopped me from writing the book. I'm just a man in a room with no expectations. And so in other words, you, the writer writes the book and tries to create something beautiful. Tries to create the greatest art that he can, he or she can. And you let, and then afterwards, we'll let the chips fall where they may. If if you're a good writer, you're not going to exploit anybody. For example, just quickly to give you two examples, uh, you know, uh, in a few years ago, uh, science fiction writers have always done this. They've never thought twice about uh, writing about different genders. Uh, different uh, different races. Uh, the, hell, they even went out of our species. They'd write about different species, different objects. You've got great, uh, like two great uh, African American writers, like uh, Samuel Delaney and uh, Octavia Butler, are two great black uh, writers. Uh, and you know, I don't want to. I don't even like pigeonholing people in a science fiction. But these are writers that. W wrote great white characters. They wrote great black characters. They, they would write about women or about men. Writers shouldn't have any borders. The only thing that stops you is your talent. If, you, if you're writing about a real character and you're not creating a stereotype, then that, that's what you want to do, you know? Um, uh, to answer your other question, my no my novel is being published in in France, it, it, and it will be in uh, available in French. The novel is also being published in uh, Italy and uh, the UK, and uh, oh, and Greece because of the Odyssey. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Did I answer your question? Yes. 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 Thank you. Other question? Any other? We have, think we'll take. We can take one more. I think if there's another question, or we can move to the buying and signing of books part of the evening, which um, we like to encourage. So, um, all right. So, thank you, Guy. Thank you, David. Thank you all for coming. Buy this book. Read this book. Buy more than one copy of this book. Okay. Thank. Thank you for coming out. Buy other books too. Yeah. Buy books in general. Thanks for coming out to in a drizzly night. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.